Hi there, it's Megan from the Grattan Institute. You're about to hear a recording of our Forward Thinking event held last Tuesday on the demand-driven higher education system. Please note, we unfortunately had Andrew Norton Skyping in and had some audio issues. As such, some of our audio recording has been re-recorded by Andrew so that you can hear his answers. Other parts have been left as is. Um, So bear with it and hopefully you enjoy. Thanks. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Okay, good evening, everybody, and welcome uh, to the Scratton Institute debate this evening on the demand-driven higher education funding system and whether it's frozen or finished. Now, talking of frozen, what we hope is not to have a technology freeze tonight because one of our panel members is joining us by Skype. Um, I'll introduce your panel members soon, um, but hopefully Andrew will stay with us from Melbourne throughout the whole evening. Um, so, uh, my name's Libby Hackett. Delighted to see you all here this evening. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of this land. We pay our respect to the elders of both past and present of the Eora Nation and extend that respect to any Indigenous visitors here with us this evening. Um, please note this evening's discussion is being recorded for podcast and uh, transcript will be on the Grand Institute website. So when we come round to Q&A later, um, just wait for the microphone um, before you start your question. Um, so the subject this evening, the demand-driven hired system, for those of you that are not die-in-the-wool higher education policy experts, and I'm sure you all are, but um, in late uh, December 2017, just the end of last year, the government froze public funding for bachelor degree places in Australian universities. In doing so, it ended six years of demand-driven funding that had let public universities enrol unlimited numbers of bachelor degree students on a fully funded basis. The question we're asking this evening is should the demand-driven system be restored. Its supporters would argue that it increases access to higher education, uh, contributing to social mobility, that it fixed the skills shortages and caused uh, caused by too few graduates, and encouraged innovation in teaching. Its detractors, however, argue that admission standards have fallen, uh, that we now have too many graduates in Australia, and that it costs taxpayers far too much money. So this evening, we have three speakers with us. Um, I would like to introduce our excellent speakers to you. To my left, on the far end, is uh, Judith Sloan. So Judith is Contributing Economics Editor at The Australian. She's been an academic and a commissioner at the Productivity Commission and the Australian Fair Pay Commission, as well as a company director. Craig Emerson, to my left, many of you will recognise as Managing Director of Craig Emerson Economics and a consultant at KPMG. He was a member of the House of Representatives of course from 1998 to 2013 and a minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments including the Minister for Tertiary Education in 2013. Andrew is with us on the screen behind you. Andrew Norton is the Higher Education Programme Director at the Grattan Institute and has helped put so much of this evening together for us. In 2014 he was the co-author of the Government Commissioned Review on Demand-Driven Funding System. So we all know Andrew's view on this subject unless of course they've changed. Um, So delighted to get started this evening. In terms of the format, um, we're going to run through until about 7pm with um, 
more structured questions uh, agreed in advance with the panel um, that I'll be working through with them and keeping them to their time and their and their moderated approach. Um, and then from 7 o'clock till 7.30, we'll open it up to question and, and answers. And we would really like to invite uh, really any questions at all. We'd be delighted to receive them. Um, so I will get started with our first question. Um, the first question is to Andrew. Um, and it's really just a bit of background um, for, to help all of us this evening. So Andrew, in about two to three minutes, could you please sum up what is demand-driven funding and what has happened to it? So demand-driven funding has to be contrasted with implied contrast, which is supply-driven funding, which is what we've had uh, historically in Australia and we're back to now, where effectively that means that the government decides how much it'll fund universities and then allocates that funding between universities. And so what that has created over time is a system where uh, supply is always well below demand. Uh, that has meant historic high unmet demand from people wanting to go to university. And around the time of the Bradley report in 2008, which is what led to the demand-driven system, there were a wide range of skill shortages, about 40 graduate occupations in skill shortage. And I think at the time, the government decided that they didn't know how to second guess this market, and so they would create the demand-driven system. What we've got now is uh, this year and next year, uh, the universities will receive a maximum of the money they received in 2017. And then after that, in 2020, funding will be increased in line with national population growth, uh, provided universities meet various performance indicators around uh, low socioeconomic status participation, attrition, and graduate outcomes. Excellent, thank you. That's a great summary. Um, so our first set of questions are around participation and equity. Craig, starting with you, if I may, um, one of the goals of the demand-driven funding was to increase higher education participation in general, and particularly low uh, participation from low SES, uh, socioeconomic status background individuals. So we've reached a point where 40% of 20 to 25-year-olds will hold a bachelor degree by 2025. Um, this may sound quite high, but it actually doesn't put Australia anywhere near the highest amongst OECD countries, um, but it is nevertheless an achievement. Um, in terms of low SES students participating, if we look at the bottom quartile, they're projected to be 20% of enrolments by 2020, and the numbers, the actual individual numbers have doubled from 20,000 to 40,000 students participating, over, and that's over 10 years from the lowest SES backgrounds. So do you think it's achieved what it was hoping to do? and how threatened do you think this progress is by the funding freeze? And if I could ask, if you'll speak for three or four minutes and then we'll ask Judith to respond for one minute and Andrew to respond for one minute. Sure. Okay, you. well, uh, by way of background, um, I became a voter in uh, 1972 when uh, Gough Whitlam became Prime Minister and there was this great vision of free university education, which of course was never free, it just meant that taxpayers paid for it, but uh, for the user it was to be free. And there was a pretty strong um, message in that, that this was to open the gates to kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds, and, and so it was a big social reform. 
but it didn't actually open the gates to kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, I think an analysis of the period then right through each five years would show that there was no real change. And I did have the pleasure of introducing Chris Evans, Senator Chris Evans, to Bob Hawke one day um, at a function at the Lodge and I said, Bob, this is Chris Evans and under him uh, who and he, it was he who was higher education minister and implementing the Bradley recommendations. At last, that vision, if you like, is starting to become a reality. So those low SES numbers are moving. Uh, and that's frankly why I'm so attracted to it. There are other arguments that we'll get into as to why um, it is or isn't a good idea, but my key criterion in this is the test that I apply is, has it changed the socioeconomic composition of um, kids going to uni? And the answer is yes. And it's the first thing. There are lots of uh, programs um, that had been attempted over the years and none of them worked. And that's why I was so encouraged about the demand-driven system. Um, and that's you know, why I think it's a dreadful mistake to um, recap uh, university places. Um, I'm more from the philosophy of markets uh, and I have um, I'm able to re tell uh, the description of um, Professor Max Corden, who helped me with my uh, PhD thesis along with Ross Garno, and um, Max famously wrote that the pre-existing system before the demand system, he described it as Moscow on the Molonglo, and that is that um, uh, public servants would sit around and amazingly not only would come up with a total, but every university and every course in every university would be given a number by the commissars in Canberra. And and I you know, I thought, well, this is a pretty crazy system where you know we've turned our backs rightly on communism a long time ago, and yet uh, that was the system of allocating places, uh, and that was no longer the case. The last thing I'll say on the demand-driven system, and I'm sure we'll get further into this, is it is true that it allows um, young people who did not do so well at school to get into university. It's a fair question to say, well, why should we allow kids who didn't do so well to get into university? And I um, typify it by the electorate that I represented. Logan City has a lot of disadvantaged people. It has a lot of disadvantaged um, Pacific Islander kids. And it wasn't unusual for a young person at school to be in a, a home with five, six, seven, eight brothers and sisters, a lot of noise, you know, you, very often a housing commission home and they might only start studying at nine o'clock at night and finish at 10.30. It's very hard to do really well at university and those, you know, at school to go into university, but isn't it a wonderful thing that they have a chance under a demand-driven system? Those who've just by their home circumstances would like to do better, can't do better, under the old system, didn't really have a chance of getting into university under the demand-driven system. Yes, they did. And Judith, on equity and access, how would you respond? 
Um, well, I have a completely different perspective on this, actually. Um, and let us assume for a minute that that is the objective of policy, to increase the participation of those from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Just opening the floodgates is not a good answer. You really have to dig deep and think what are the barriers to those young people uh, participating. Um, indeed, we're kind of selling them a pup because we're opening the floodgates and what has happened is that those with low ATAR scores don't complete or they complete to a much lower extent than other people. Um, the returns to university education have gone down significantly, both in terms of the rate of employment, particularly the rate of full-time employment, and the salary premium attached to being a graduate has been quite significantly eroded in quite a short time. So in order, it, it, it's really um, what economists would say, it's a very poor linking of objective with, with the policy measure. Now, if, let's think about the barriers to uh, the participation of those from low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, and um, you're right to make that illustrative point. But um, we, of course, have a system where probably the brightest from those low socioeconomic backgrounds have actually participated for quite some time. Uh, because the HEX scheme was deliberately designed, so upfront costs would not deter those people, and of course there are quite significant youth allowance uh, support and the like. So it, it, I just worry that these kids have been sold a pup. They haven't done well at school. They possibly have had inferior schooling. They have lived in environments which are probably not conducive to excelling in higher education for a whole lot of reasons, including the fact that, you know, probably, um, you know, there wasn't a sort of culture within the family uh, that was conducive to that. And I guess the final point I would make is that the flip side of this opening the floodgates through demand-driven enrolment has been basically killing off the sector, killing off the vocational education training sector. And if you actually uh, were kind of interested in a more holistic way of how to um, help these kids in navigate through uh, the labour market and you look at where the jobs are, and Andrew has accepted that those skill shortages have faded, you, you should start to think aged care, disability services, childcare and the like. Now, how do you get into those industries? You basically need to go through vocational education and training, but that system has been put under incredible financial and indeed, you know, number pressures as a result, as, as the sort of parallel to the floodgates being open to university education. Thanks, Judith. Those are really helpful points. Um, Andrew, your perspective on this, the one minute on the access equity issue? So I think Judith has got a, a powerful point about this vocational education alternative. I think this is particularly the case for young men where there are still pretty good financial benefits from vocational education. But I think the story is different for young women. Most of the data we've been able to look at is that for young women with a vocational diploma or certificate three or four, there's very little, if any, financial gain from doing the vocational education path, while there is still a substantial gain from doing higher education. 
So I guess I am certainly against arbitrary caps on student numbers, but certainly we need to give people good advice about what's in their own interests, given both their academic aptitude and the jobs that are going to be available over the next five to 10 years. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and that leads us nicely onto the next area of conversation for the panel. And Judith, I'll start with you if that's okay. But, but we're talking about academic suitability and definitions of this. So one of the main criticisms of the demand-driven funding was that it lets in too many students who are not academically suited to higher education. Do you agree? Um, and what do we mean? How do we measure not academically suited? Um, and would tougher academic standards on entry by set by universities resolve the problems of demand-driven system in your view? Um, look, I think it's a complicated issue and actually, you know, I work for 18 years at Flinders University um, and you never asked a student there why they were there because they'd say because I didn't get into Adelaide. Um, and the truth of the matter, and these were well before the days of uh, demand-driven enrolment, there really were quite a lot of people there who were very unsuited, particularly a course like economics, which is both conceptual and, and a, a wee bit mathematical. Um, and, you know, I used to eventually say to some of them, like, I don't know why you're here, um, which was probably working against my, my interest. Um, look, I, I, I think... This is really an important issue. See, I don't trust the universities. Um, you know, I think that they are prepared to allow the standards to slip in order to put bums on seats. And I think that's partly how I interpret what's happened. And Andrew uh, has presented some really interesting figures, and I understand, uh, Libby, they're going to go up on the on the web uh, uh, after this uh, presentation we're making, um, which I'd really um, encourage you to look at, because some of the universities have increased to the most remarkable extent, like, uh, you know, by 16,000, 17,000 additional students to their student body. Absolutely extraordinary numbers. Now, you can't tell me that a university can increase their enrolments, which I'm thinking are probably 50 or 60% increase, without allowing the standards to slip. The, the final point I would make, and, and you know, maybe this will make me seem nicer, is that um, I think a lot of these kids probably need some sort of pathway, some transition, some um, associate diploma, some um, means instead of enrolling first up in um, uh, an undergraduate bachelor's degree program, what they really need is uh, a stepping stone. And as I understand it, and Andrew's an absolute whiz at keeping up to date with the, the funding requirements, as I understand it, at least for quite a lot of this period of time, that it it was uh, the funding was very hostile to those stepping stone programs. I think they were kept. I think Andrew, um, and so let me think of Melbourne, where Victoria University is probably the most marginal university. It seemed to me their most sensible strategy was to get kids into some sort of uh, pathway programs, some um, getting them uh, ready for higher education. But sadly, the uh, funding has not always been conducive to that. So I would see that as a sort of an appropriate way uh, for, for policy to shift. 
Thank you. Um, the document that Judith is referencing is a um, demand-driven facts and figures uh, report that Andrew wrote uh, and is published on the Grattan Institute uh, February 2018, but we'll make sure the link is up in relation to this event as well. Um, Craig, any comments on this particular Yeah, issue? sure. Um, I'll disagree and agree uh, on two different points that um, Judith made. I don't think there's any basis to say, well, the brightest kids from poor um, backgrounds get into uni anyway. Um, maybe there was some circumstance that uh, allowed them to express their talents. Um, often, by the way, a mother, um, the statistical evidence suggests that, and this is where you do actually get this kind of entrenched privilege and entrenched uh, disadvantage. If mum's been to university, the chances of the child going to university are very high. If mum hasn't been to university, you can still get there. You can still get there, but it's, it's you know the probabilities are much lower. Um, so I, I don't have that confidence that somehow this you know the, the brightest will come through. I think that there's a lot of people who are bright who, or, or, or even if they're not bright, I don't care if they're not bright, just so long as they can do it. You know, like why do we have to say oh well only bright people can go to university anyway? Um, so, but I, I think. Because they're universities and they strive for excellence, that's what a university does, but there we go. Well, that's just elitism, it's just straight elitism and I, I don't think right. that... Yeah, exactly. And and I admire you because you, you actually say I'm an elitist and that's fine, I'm not. Um, uh, I'm for egalitarianism, so... but the, I do respect that that's what you say, you're you're an elitist. And uh, I don't mean in a derogatory way, I'm just saying you've got a different philosophy. No, no, but I'm making a more nuanced point, which is th that I think high-quality higher education is not suitable for everyone. And, you know, we're just kidding ourselves if we think it is. And the only way that you can broaden out the student body in the way they have, and, and let's forget about the socioeconomic background, let's talk about their school performance, is by basically dumbing down the courses. Now, I've seen it. It does happen. Well, okay, let me, let me um, continue on. So... In terms of um, access and the bridging courses, they are very important. Um, when I was the Minister for Tertiary Education for just that one year, when um, the Gillard government was cutting back on funding everywhere to help um, finance the so-called Gonski changes, uh, I was instructed to find savings in that area, which I did, um, but I said, as part of this overall arrangement, I'm asking for increased funding for the bridging courses. Again, it's probably because I'm a politician, but I like to, you know, tell a quick story about it. And at Logan Institute of TAFE, um, that was a very, very popular course for exactly the circumstances of people, you know, their, their basic English expression might be, mightn't be good enough, basic mathematics mightn't be good enough. They do that course for one year and then they get into university. And I think they're magical. I think they're really, really important. Thank you, Craig. Andrew, before we ask your comment, um, 
two two things I would note when we discuss this um, as we have done for 20 years or so in the UK um, two things always come up in this debate first is whether we have a broad enough definition of higher education and whether we are actually asking uh, whether we want to merge our further education our TAFE and our higher education systems and have a tertiary sector at some point but that gets very controversial very quickly um, and the second um, angle that is that is always brought up is the Robbins principle. So, uh, in a, in in the UK, uh, in 1963, the Robbins Review established a principle that university places should be available to all who are qualified by their ability and attainment to pursue them and who wish to do so. And I think my question to you, Andrew, in this section of academic suitability is: um, Are we all in agreement with this principle? Is the debate about how to identify who is academically qualified, or is this debate really coming back to this first principle itself? Um, is that principle now too simplistic in a mass higher education system 55 years later? One of the big issues in higher education is working out who's got potential to succeed. And so you can use measures like ATAR, but the lower it gets, uh, the less reliable it is in predicting who will succeed and who won't succeed. And one of the ways around that is to send students via a diploma pathway program. What those diplomas do is they typically teach the first year of a target bachelor degree course, but they do it with more remedial assistance to fill whatever academic gaps you've got. And what we've found in various studies is that the students who go via the pathway program outperform students who actually got higher ATARs than they did and went straight into the bachelor degree. So that's one way of doing it. The other thing we've been doing at Grattan recently is that we have been looking at this whole process of selection to uni and subsequent attrition. And what we've come to believe is this is actually a, quite an experimental process that we've got students who aren't necessarily sure about whether higher ed is for them. They have a go. Some of them succeed and stay, others leave. And the key thing here is not necessarily to be very, very strict with this uncertain group at the start, but if things are going wrong after they, after they do start studying, to exit them fairly quickly at minimal cost to themselves and at minimal cost to taxpayers. Thank you. Andrew, we're going to stay with you for the next section of conversation, which is around employment outcomes. Um, the demand-driven system has contributed to some of the worst ever employment outcomes for graduates, certainly six months after graduation. Um, wouldn't some capping ease this problem? Um, and could you also talk about whether this is really the right measure? Our employability measures are the right measures. Are we trying to look at the future based on categories um, from the past? And, and how are we working and how are we tracking in terms of their employment outcomes? And are we looking at that in an appropriate way? So I think with a demand-driven system, there was a bit of historical bad luck that as it was being introduced, the global financial crisis was hitting. And this had some particularly uh, significant effects on the labour market in coming years. What we saw was that even though the number of full-time jobs for graduates went down but only slightly, the number of graduates went up a lot. And the combination of those two factors was that uh, graduate un or underemployment, this is people looking for full-time work after finishing their degrees, 
went up significantly to its worst ever levels and it was over 30% in 2014. So that was a very negative outcome. We've also seen some decline in the quality of jobs as measured by what percentage of graduates are getting professional or managerial jobs. That's also been negative. On the other hand, we do see that even though people are getting a, you know, a difficult start to their careers, in a three-year-out survey, which tracks the same people we looked at four months out, full-time employment rates have generally been reasonably good, including for those who graduated into the worst possible year, which is 2014. I think this is going to be an area of ongoing difficulty, but the key question for me is always not is this group of students doing well compared to cohorts in the past, because the answer to that is probably going to be no. The key question is, for young people considering their options, which of these are going to maximise their opportunities and minimise their risks for the future? I think there probably is a group of students uh, for whom vocational education would be better, but I think for the vast majority of people who chose higher education over the last decade or so, that probably was the best choice they could have made at the time, even though the results for some of them have been disappointing. Um, well, you know, factually, I agree with Andrew. Um, but look, I, I think that the two key issues are this. Um, you know, I'm of the view that a, a fair element of higher education, higher education completion, is just a screening device, right? So it's not actually improving productivity. It's just a signal to employers that these people have stuck with it, they're reasonably compliant, and maybe their grades indicate that they're reasonably smart. Do they actually have any real um, absorption of course content that will be useful in most jobs? Probably not. Um, and I'd like a lot of research done on that. Um, so I think what's happened is that uh, the decline in the employment rates and the salary premium attached to uh, graduates is completely consistent with that screening hypothesis, in my opinion. Um, now, Andrew might say, and it's an interesting point, that if you look at higher education participation in other developed economies, including ones where actually students bear probably a much higher financial burden of undertaking it, um, they look fairly similar. Is he nodding? Yes. Um, good. Um, now, uh, I guess one response to that is that, in other words, you know, the demand-driven enrolment system doesn't really make that much difference because we have similar participation rates to other countries. I actually think this might be very confirmatory of this uh, screening hypothesis that basically around the world, young people know that the only way they're going to get a leg into the sort of better jobs is by completing a degree. So that force is so strong that irrespective of the funding arrangements, that's what happens. And I refer you in particular to uh, Brian Kaplan's work on this, which I think is most entertaining. Um, so I think we've got to, and, and why this is important is that in the Australian case, we're spending a lot of taxpayers' money on this screening, and 
a lot of taxpayers' money has very high opportunity costs. We could be doing other stuff with this money. And if you look at Andrew's figures, we basically went from spending $4 billion on student tuition to $7 billion, you know, so like a 75% increase in a really short space of time. We're talking serious money, you know. Um, and so even in Warren Buffett terms. Um, so I think we have to ask the question, and we always as an economists have to ask the question is what, what we need to identify these opportunity costs, which at a minimum might be actually returning it to the taxpayer, I might add. But I think there are a lot of people even in this audience who could dream up other um, activities to fund other than the marginal higher education student body. Thanks, Judith. There is quite a lot of academic evidence around what you're discussing. Professor Alison Wolfe at King's College London is another um, advocate of this uh, tyranny of numbers theory she's written about, that once you get over 40 or 45% participation in higher education, employers and students and parents think about it differently and it, it becomes a, uh, a necessary minimum. Uh, exactly. Um, Craig, your views on the, uh, dem the, the employment consequences for graduates of the demand-driven system? Uh, okay, so so uh, Judith said earlier, and I agree with her, um, university isn't for everyone. But no one suggesting university is for everyone. 40% is not everyone. It's not even half of everyone. Um, and so I, I think in this, the digital age, we are going to need to have, um, I won't even call them skill sets, because as soon as we think skill, we think mechanistically. You know, I'm thinking more about um, an ability to learn through your life that you acquire through university. And now I'm going to say something fairly radical here. Um, I think that maybe with the exception of the group that Andrew is talking about who quit really early, they might only be there for three or four months and say, it's not for me. Is it a disaster? if someone goes to university and doesn't complete a degree, is this a shocking thing? Yes, it does involve taxpayers' money, but you'll be aware of um, Professor Andrew Lee, now a Member of Parliament, and he did pretty rigorous um, statistical analysis on kids going, uh, staying on at school from year 11 to year 12, just staying on, not successfully graduating with you know all the stars and whistles and everything else and there were very tangible benefits from them just being at school for that extra year even if they didn't do well and maybe didn't even pass at the end of the year and I think that university education is a very civilizing experience and I think that's important for the quality of our society and it's important in terms of the skills that we're going to need in the digital age because repetitive skills, whether they are done by people on low incomes or even middle and high incomes, are going to go. And so we need these other attributes that I think are provided by university education. Um, I d Andrew might be able to tell me the answer to that, but... Um in terms of the return to dropouts, as I understand it, very, very poor. So if you go to university and you don't complete, uh, very poor return. Um, I'm not sure. I'm really keen on the taxpayers giving people a shot, you know, shopping around. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to the point. Let us think seriously about the opportunity costs of this. Um, 
Mm. And if someone's so uncertain, they just sort of give it a go, they might be much better advised to give vocational education a go, which in many instances you can get a certificate um, in six to 12 months and a diploma in two years. So, Well, that might, uh, I think Andrew hit on an important point. That may actually be truer for yeah. blokes yeah. Um, because they might end up, I, I mean, women can be electricians and no problem, but I'm just saying it's more likely to be blokes who are electricians or tradies and so on and, and the returns from that, you know, everyone here who's asked a tradie to come and quote on a job will say, well, they're pretty good. Um, but I noticed that in the big increase in enrolments from the demand-driven system, one of the biggest increases was in nursing. Well, I'm really happy to have lots more nurses. We've got an ageing population. We've got much more sophisticated um, health technologies. And in a rich country, we actually like quality health services. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, nursing and science were the biggest growth areas. I think that's a fantastic accolade to the ambition of young people. Um, I do think we need to be a little bit careful of... of uh, mindsets so as as whole nations as whole societies we can come up with quite fixed mindsets if you uh, go to the US and ask them about retention or dropout they are so much more relaxed about it over there now again is this a structural uh, tertiary education issue because they would be very um, hung up about it in their more uh, elite universities but in the community colleges it is absolutely about recognizing that they're you know they they do it in in units, they, there's huge levels of, of what some might describe as dropout, but those individuals that have had that chance, that have had that life-changing experience, see the value in that, even if there there isn't anything like the, the same financial return to those going for the full five years to the to the elite institutions. But let's move on um, to the financial side and the financial elements, which we've been covering, of course, because it weaves into all of this. But Craig, I'm going to ask you to start. Um, demand-driven funding contributed to a very large increase in spending. Was it four to seven billion? Is that right? Um, the main tuition subsidy program, the Commonwealth Grant Scheme, increased by nearly 60% in real terms from 07 to 2017. This is billions of dollars of additional ongoing federal funding. Um, Craig, in 2013, you became the first of several higher education ministers to propose reduced demand-driven funding with an efficiency dividend on the Commonwealth Grant Scheme for 2014-15. Do you believe that it's better for higher education overall for universities to have a bit less per student rather than cap the whole system entirely? Well, just to correct you, I did not propose extra fund, uh, reduced funding. Um, Corrections, thank the you. The Department of Finance proposed reduced funding and that was supported by the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. And I'd just come back from a trip to China to be told that there needed to be um, some curbing of funding. And what I tried, it just might be worth explaining exactly what happened. Um, so this is what the curve looked like in terms of actual spending on the demand-driven system. <clears throat> what we were trying to do in the education department and, um, and through me was to say, don't just keep drawing a straight line here because there is such a thing as a backlog. So you introduce a demand-driven system where there has not been one before, and again, I'll, I'll typify it. Uh, a th it was very common for women in their 30s to say, I want to do that. 
and I'm assuming nursing, but I could be wrong, lots of different courses. And so a backlog is, you know, a fixed amount um, that gets soaked up over time. So I tried to argue with the Department of Finance that this would level off. And um, looking at the charts, I think it actually has to level off. To level off. But they've they got a job to do and they're bean counters and they go, well, we don't know if it's going to level off or not and so we're recommending to the ERC that um, some changes be made. So I was actually in negotiation with the universities or at least in uh, about the idea of voluntarily just saying, let's just sort of take the foot off the accelerator a bit here so that we keep the system. And um, finance then said we're not going to recognise any voluntary agreements. And that's what happened when I was in China. We will not, because they are the ones, and it should be this way, they're the ones who put the numbers in the budget. You know, politicians don't get to do that. And they said, even if you come to these agreements with universities who were very interested in principle in doing this, they said, we won't count it. And that's when it came to this efficiency dividend, which was to cut, uh, not to cut the funding because it was still rising, but to pull it back by uh, 2% in the first year and 1.5% in the second year or vice versa. Um, and that that kind of led to, well, a very, very active political campaign uh, by the 31 universities. One university, the University of Canberra, did not join in that campaign. And then sadly, with the change of government, it led to a, a, an agreement amongst some of the um, Group of eight, which have been cooked up before the budget announcement, that they were going to completely deregulate university fees, uh, and I thought that would be a very, very bad outcome, and never came to pass because the Senate wouldn't allow it. Thank you, Craig. Judith, your view on the cost of demand-driven AT? Um, well, look, you know, I, I think I've made my point that um, uh, you know I, I, I find it hard to justify, but let. And okay, so I may as well make myself really unpopular. You've got to understand the university's uh, objectives actually also to maximise research grants. Um, it's not actually, and, and if you look at the figures, um, there's been quite a sort of variation in terms of maximising student numbers. If I think of my university, University of Melbourne, they deliberately chose not to increase their undergraduate intake much. They've actually wanted to, uh, possibly a, a strategy that might ultimately fail, their, their game was to actually get more Commonwealth-funded postgraduate students in, in keeping with the Melbourne model. But um, if you go to most universities in Melbourne, and my guess is it uh, is true in Sydney, you can see how lavishly funded they are. There are Taj Mahals everywhere. When I went to the University of Melbourne as an undergraduate, it stopped at Grattan Street. Uh, it now basically occupies most of Southern Carlton. There are new buildings being built all the time. It is lavish. Uh, can I also point out that the vice chancellors, most of them earn, you know, close to a million, okay? Do you honestly think that would have happened under the previous arrangement? Well, it didn't. Um, there are vi uh, deputy vice chancellors, pro vice chancellors. There are, I mean, I look at those titles and I wonder what they do, these people. I'm actually wondering whether I should apply. Um, but 
you know, there is, and and I mean, there is, there are the sort of economic theories for it. You know, it's the sort of theory of bureaucracy. You know, so basically, a lot of these gains are snaffled by the managerial class, um, and indeed, I think the hard working academic back at the coalface feels reasonably bitter about what's happened. Now, of course, in amongst this mix has been basically the salad days of full fee paying overseas students. Um, and that has helped pretty much every university, but some more than others. I mean, I take the faculty of um, um, business and economics at University of Melbourne, they could fill the entire quota, first year undergraduate quota, which is huge, I might add, with overseas um, full fee paying students. Um, so I think it's worth us not thinking just about demand-driven enrolment in isolation from other things that have happened, frankly, um, because I think, you know, when the universities talk about unmet demand, I think, I'll oh, give it up. I mean, what does that even mean in the context of variable, you know, entry standards? It was always absolute bollocks, in my opinion, that one. And, and secondly, these are institutions which are extraordinarily well-funded and going back to my opportunity cost thing, I'm quite happy to see real funding taken away from them and it may not just be in respect of student enrolments uh, and reallocated to worthier causes. Judith, um, Andrew, you get the last word um, from the panel for the time being at least and then we'll do, enter into Q&A. But um, on this financial side, can I particularly ask you, do you think it's possible to have demand-driven HE system without the burden of cost falling on the federal government? And should domestic full-fee places be reintroduced for over-enrolments as was the case pre-2009? So on the question of whether full-fee undergraduate place should be reintroduced now that we've got some caps on numbers? I think the answer to that is no. I think we should be pushing for restoration of the demand-driven system. Full fee places are only really needed when there are hard caps and people simply can't get into university. But when we tried this last time from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s effectively, there was huge controversy over a relatively small number of students. And I really think it's we shouldn't be reopening that particular wound. We should be trying to fix the, the capping that's uh, been put in place last December. Thank you. We'll move on to Q&A with the audience. Um, now, can I ask, has anybody been thinking of a question? Are there any questions? And please do wait Are for the... Are there any questions? <laughs> please do wait for the microphone. There was a lady with a green jacket and had her hand up first. Thank you. Please do introduce yourself and then ask your question to the panel. Thank you. Uh, Caroline Perkins, I'm the Executive Director of the Regional Universities Network. I just wanted to point out first that when you said there's an average of 40% participation at university, it's actually about half that in the regions. So my question is, should there be more of a place-based focus in terms of funding policy for universities? Um, an example perhaps would be the involvement of universities in things like city deals, and the University of Tasmania is at the, the crux of the Launceston city deal and there's uh, funding for places and infrastructure as part of that. Is that a good model to go ahead with, do you think? It's a fantastic question. Thank you. Can we take two questions and then bring them to the panel? Thank you. It's a lady on the front row here. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Rebecca Weiser. And, um, I run my own company. Uh, 
Craig, you make a very good point that only 40% of people go to university and 60% don't. And on the whole, people who graduate, notwithstanding you know, all of the nuances that have been discussed, tend to be better off, if not before, than after. So the 60% who are subsidising the 40% are actually people on the whole with lower incomes. I want to combine that with a point, Judith, that you made, that universities tend to capture a lot of benefits from taxpayer subsidies. So my question is, if the taxpayers who are funding this, these Taj Mahals and so forth are the lower income uh, people that, Craig, you care about from an egalitarian point of view, should perhaps the universities themselves have some skin in the game? For example, if the university gets a benefit, even if it enrolls someone just because they've got a pulse, rather than because they will be able to repay the loan from the taxpayer, should the university have to wear the cost if that loan is never repaid? Would that create an incentive for universities to look at enrolling people who will be able to complete the course and will be able to repay the money? Those are both great questions. So first on the importance of place and oh, secondly... Yeah. Uh, on place, um, it, it turns out that the... I think it's fair to say, and Andrew um, or Judith might be able to correct me and I invite them to if I'm wrong, that regional universities especially access the demand-driven system. So, And I think that, that is a good thing. I wrote a book called Vital Signs, Vibrant Society in 2005 where I um, identified a few policy levers that could um, create um, more interesting places in our regions as part of an overpopulation strategy. So my answer is yet to you is yes, but as part of you know, a broader regional strategy, I won't, you know, but increasing the social capital, you know, making sure there are really good hospitals, a, a university and so on. So people will say, you know, there are actually advantages of getting out of this crazy city and moving to the regional area. So I, I think as part of that, yes. Um, on uh, who pays for uh, those who do go through university, I hear from people, I'm not saying you, Rebecca, who make this same argument, the, the following statement, have a look at the income tax statistics and you'll find that high income people pay most of the income tax. Well, you can't, people can't have it both ways. Uh, either high income people do pay most of the income tax and therefore it's not poor people who are paying it, or they don't. Um, but I often hear that it's the same people making two completely contradictory arguments. In terms of um, economic theory, I think there are spillover benefits for society of people um, going to university. I think it's uh, great for them and I think it's great for society. As I said earlier, I think university education is very civilising. I wouldn't be at all surprised if you looked at the incidence of domestic violence, of um, uh, just general violence and so on, you would find that amongst university graduates it's lower. 
And so I just have this view that if we can get people into that sort of richer experience, then society becomes more civilised and more decent. And I'm, in terms of opportunity cost, everyone's got their own view about where the money should, you know, priorities. For me, personally, that's a high priority. If you're saying, well, where, you know, there should be um, scrutiny of budgets, people up until a few years ago on $120,000 a year were getting family payments. You know, checks sent them every fortnight from the government. Um, and it was the Howard government that dramatically increased middle class and upper class welfare, often for university graduates. So, um, you know, if I were looking for savings, I'd be looking in those areas rather than in universities. I mean, if you want to feel scared, though, you should go and have a look at the Parliamentary Budget Office's estimates of what will ultimately be the unpaid debt on the, the HEX student loans. It's like really scary. Uh, and in fact, that's not actually brought to book in the budget. Uh, and we're talking billions of dollars. I mean, the point I would make is that the way HEX is designed, it probably doesn't impose a sufficient contribution on the student, um, including we've got this sort of weird system with the small number of private universities who have to pay a kind of service fee and the others don't. I'd like to see that extended to everyone, frankly. You see, um, you know, if, if students are bearing more of the real cost, I guess I don't really care if they can't go and play around, um, but I'm worried that because they've they're charged too little, that they that creates bad incentives. On the regional issue, I mean, I would make the point that if you look at regional employment, it's not nearly as higher education intensive um, as the cities. And of course, the Grattan Institute is uh, doing a lot of research, uh, which shows that uh, all the futures in big cities, uh, not in regions, but there we go. But if you look at the universities that have expanded the most, they're not actually the regional ones. So Swinburne, uh, that's one that's gone up by about 17,000 between 2008, 2016, the total student. Australian Catholic University, I don't think that's particularly regional. I think that's all city. Deakin, but Deakin, I mean, okay, it's Geelong, but, you know, would you call that regional? Region. I call it well, regional. if you go to Geelong, I'm telling you, you probably wouldn't. Um, and, of course, it's got a huge campus in Melbourne, um, in Burwood. Macquarie University, not regional. Curtin University, not regional. University of Tasmania, I guess that does have a more regional um, uh, flavour. Western Sydney, uh, do we call that regional? Why yeah. do we? Okay. Um, RMIT Griffith. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that um, the regional universities are not the ones with the highest uh, increases. I mean, these are in absolute terms. So I guess some of the regional universities are quite small and so proportionately they've expanded quite a lot. But, uh, you know, being the, you know, uh, a dry economist equivalent to the Sahara Desert, I wouldn't like to see any fav particular favours given to regional universities. Andrew, your comments on uh, the importance of place in demand-driven system and also this interesting idea that, that um, if universities were asked to share the burden of cost of attrition, would that have any institutional incentive on them? On the issue of uh, regional students, I think we have to be very careful to distinguish between 
regional students and regional campuses. Because what we've seen uh, during the demand-driven system, and even to some extent before, is there's been a lot of regional students, an increasing number of regional students, that have actually decided to go to city universities for their education. And really the demand-driven system was a break with the idea that the funding system was all about the interests of universities, and instead it's about the interests of students. And if they actually prefer a city university to a regional university, uh, that's actually a positive outcome from the demand-driven system. A number of economists have called for, for universities to have what they call skin in the game, and by that they mean that universities should take some of the financial risk of things not going well uh, for the students. For example, if the student doesn't get a job and doesn't repay their help debt, uh, the university should incur some of the cost of that rather than taxpayers. While I understand the, the logic behind this, I think this has got the same problem as saying that the admissions process can work out who is going to succeed and who isn't going to succeed. There's actually too much uncertainty here for universities to be able to make correct judgments. And if they want to be really, really safe, uh, the reality is that the only genuinely low-risk students are young men with high ATARs enrolling in professional degrees. And to have that as a university system would take us back many, many decades and unwind many of the things that we've been trying to do uh, effectively since the post-World War II era. So I think whilst universities should not be reckless in the way they enrol students, we don't have any effective way of getting them to manage these risks and for that reason the taxpayer is the best place to absorb them. I think we'll, we'll go out to another couple of questions from the audience, please. Thank you. It's a lady with a blue top and then a gentleman at the back, please. Um, hi, so Alex Brown, Reserve Bank. Um, so abstracting away from socioeconomic status differences for a moment, so if you were to assume that all students came from the same background, what do you think is the optimal share of the population that should go to university? Like, is the 40% number sort of too low, too high? Because you have to think about that it is a very significant investment. It's three to five years of your life. There's significant cost for the taxpayer for yourself. So what number should we be thinking of? We'll go one more question first. Sorry. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> it's a great I've got question. An answer. <laughs> uh, Nicholas McFadden-Brown, uh, Treasury. Um, could you say what you think, uh, which which country you think could serve as a model for Australia in terms of higher education? I'm, I'm sure you probably have different answers, but uh, <laughs> uh, if you could each say what you think would be your preferred model. Great question as well. So thank you, Judith. Would you like to start with those? Um, I mean, as is my want, you know, or as is my requirement, you know, I have to read all these, you know, tortuous, long-winded government reports, and the Bradley report was no different. And I mean, don't you love it, this idea that, you know, the students should be choosing for themselves but 40%, 40%, not 25% or 35% or 55%, but 40% of 25 to 34-year-olds should ha hold bachelor's degree. That was just made up. I mean, that was just a made-up figure. Um, I mean, they had a little look overseas and the like, but the idea that that should be the proportion was just silly, you know. 
Um, and it, you know, the idea that that should have driven government policy always struck me as absolutely silly. Um, and you know, it goes back to this argument about you know, is university education mainly you know signalling or is it productivity enhancing? I mean, it's a really, really important uh, issue to sort out. I mean. I accept that if you do engineering or you do medicine or dentistry or pharmacy or stuff, one would hope that that is actually knowledge enhancing and people have a really serious set of skills when they graduate, which of course has to do, be developed on the job. But I'm less convinced of a lot of other courses. And uh, so we've got to kind of sort that out. So um, I, I don't think you know, there there is an answer, and I do go back to this point that I, I you know, we've we've expanded one system at the dramatic expense, and I'm talking dramatic expense of the vocational education training system. I mean, it's been stuffed up for a variety of reasons, including um, a very ill-advised form of um, al allowing in private providers um, and extending the sort of student loan scheme to it. Um, but leaving that aside, uh, we, we should have always run with a much more um, balanced landscape for um, people uh, to choose appropriate post-secondary uh, educational outcomes. Now, Mr. the Treasury guy, um, I don't know whether anyone's got it right, but we, I, I, I go back to the, the point about um, what are the features of a student loan scheme which are wrong here? I think uh, probably the rate is too low and they, I like this idea of including this service fee which is, applies to private universities for everyone and I would impose a real interest rate. Uh, it, 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 it is the, and, and I would also, and I mean, I, did, I don't know whether they got the change in the income threshold through, did they in the end? They did, they did, I believe they did. But only a wee bit, wasn't it? Down to 52,000. Sorry? Down to 42,000. It's 52 now. 52. But and, and, and indeed, Andrew uh, Norton has done some interesting work on this, which had shown that the threshold um, below which you didn't pay anything was incredibly low in Australia compared with, I think, the UK and New Zealand, for example. So I think it's just a matter of, is, does any country have it exactly right? Probably not. Um, but you mm -hmm. just kind of got to work through what you regard as the... Um, you know, the desirable design features and bearing in mind, I guess I accept what you're saying is that they're mainly private benefits of higher education kids um, completing, but there probably are some sort of public spillover benefits. I'm not quite sure what they are, but, you know, because, you know, if it's right, we should be really all completely civilised and, you know, all holding hands and singing kumbaya with the big increase in higher education participation. But I'm not sure. But that, I don't think that follows. <laughs> if it's 40%, again, that is well okay. short of 100%. Oh, 100%. I said 40 <laughs> I said 40 is well short of 100%. But it's a lot higher I'm, than I'm it surprised used to be. we're debating that. Um, Craig, your comments to the two questions. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't around um, in the Cabinet when the Bradley report was commissioned and um, but I suspect, speculate, that the reason the 40% number appeared was because someone would have said to is, is Lisa Bradley, no, what was her name? Denise. Uh, Denise Bradley, you're going to get asked for a number. So, she, you know, 
maybe she provided a number. I, I, I don't think it would have a lot of science behind it. Maybe it does. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. But when you do something big, like a big shift like this, people are going to say, surely, um, well, what do you think, you know, what's a good ratio look like? Um, I, I suspect it doesn't have a lot more to it than that, but it doesn't mean you don't answer the question um, if you're writing a report like that or don't try to. It's kind of a bit strange because Judith and I both have a kind of market background and I wouldn't, g given my approach to Moscow on the Malonglo and the sort of old system, I wouldn't, if I'm of that view that it shouldn't be so prescriptive and you know, set by public servants, then I would not find a particular number to be optimal. I would just say, let's see how it falls out. Um, one quick thing uh, about the lavishness of university, I've noticed it too, but they do make a hell of a lot of money out of full fee paying foreign students. And that changed um, through the mining boom, the Australian dollar was buying a dollar ten US, now it's buying 80 cents or less there's been a really big further increase. I, I suspect that that actually explains a lot of the, you know, it's kind of... But I, I did find it frustrating when Vice-Chancellor said, we, we really don't have two bobs to scratch together. It's just shocking. You you can't... This 2% efficiency dividend is just going to devastate us, like... And we're going to do a really big advertising campaign against us, which they did. Um, in terms of uh, the Treasury question about optimal models, I don't think we'd be too far away from it here in Australia. And the reason I say that is, notwithstanding the arguments that Judith's putting about the risk to standards and so on, um, whenever I see these publications, as flawed as they are, about our universities compared with the standards of universities in other countries, how many we've got in the top 100 and how it's changed, it all seems to have actually changed for the better. And if that's happening, I can't see that there's been, you know, like the, the, the demand-driven system isn't a global phenomenon, it's an Australian phenomenon, and notwithstanding the demand-driven system, which is supposed to, supposed to have, you know, dumbed down the whole university system, how come our universities are doing pretty well? In international because rankings. they're all based on research rankings and buying in Nobel Prize winners and the like. It really has apps. Those rankings have absolutely nothing to do with the student experience. Well, I mean, they're still. You, you say signalling is important. Well, look, I, th I think that is an interesting point in the sense that um, the, the rankings, I think, are very important in terms of attracting overseas students. I think a lot less so for domestic students. They choose different. Um, universities for um, you know more uh, practical reasons, but um, it's it's yeah very much uh, driven and gamed, um, and you know they're you know which ranking do you want? But I would accept the fact that Australian universities, certainly in terms of its research output um, and its world rankings, have done pretty bloody well. Thank you. Andrew, we'll try your volume quality again. What do you think in terms of the proportion of students ideally that should be in the university and which countries can we learn from? So I think this year, uh, we're all agreeing on the 40%. Andrew, also, I, think, I think we're struggling again. I'm really sorry. Um, 
in the meantime, um, We're I'll take chairs. The technology curve. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take chairs' privilege and make a couple of comments to those excellent questions because I think it's quite fun. Um, so I think what's splitting our panel at the moment in terms of the proportion of students in higher education is really a view on um, whether they agree or not with uh, new economic growth theory with regard to higher education. A new economic growth theory would state that as you put graduates into the economy, they necessarily grow the economy by virtue of the fact that they're graduates. Um, you put them in any company, any place, any position, and they will overperform to the point that they are performing at graduate level. That is a particular theory. Those that pr uh, expand uh, that theory um, uh, will be the sorts of people that will put aspirational figures on uh, on what uh, percentage of people in the in the economy in should be should go to university because the theory is if you can get to forty percent forty five percent fifty percent you'll grow your economy by growing your proportion of graduates in the economy. This was the Tony Blair's passionate theory and why he set a fifty percent participation rate and then of course was I think behind a lot of the forty percent target as well. It doesn't matter that it's slightly arbitrary. It's an ambitious figure because the belief is that those graduates will grow an innovation knowledge-based economy. Um, the other side of the coin uh, are those people that believe that new economic theory is hugely flawed and there are lots of, uh, there is a lot of academic evidence to show that it is quite flawed um, and would be able to demonstrate that there is, uh, it is limited by the utilisation of graduates in our economy. So our employer's ability to utilise graduates in our economy is a sticking point for new economic growth theory and this is where we come into all these fun conversations about what proportion of students um, should be going to university because how what kind of economy do we want and what, how are we able to stimulate the economy to absorb the graduates or to grow graduates that actually would be entrepreneurs and starting new businesses and employing people themselves and we don't even know how to measure that in terms of graduate employment so it's a, it's a whole new world but Andrew have we got you on volume at this point? Uh, the original question sits here. So I'm agreed that the 40% had no science behind it. Um, the key is really Craig's point that this is about adapting to needs as they emerge, not actually meeting any target. Australia is doing reasonably well, and it's very difficult to compare, particularly on the funding side, because every funding system is deeply enmeshed with the, the broader tax and welfare systems of different countries. But I think, you know, we have been an innovative country in income contingent loans. Uh, we have managed to greatly increase our research output through effective incentives and, and the rankings. Probably the one area where we're still uh, behind, at least England and the United States, is in our students are not as satisfied with teaching as they are in other countries, and that's probably a weakness in Australia. Yeah, that's very fair. Thank you, Andrew. So a couple more questions from the audience, please. These probably will be our last two. There's a gentleman near the front here and then with a pink shirt just along the same road. Thank you. Hello, uh, Robert Bolton from the Financial Review newspaper. Um, if you agree with Craig's point that the universities are pretty lavish and generally you might say universities are a bit lazy in their use of revenue and capital, and if we're not sure whether changing the demand-driven system will really do anything about increasing productivity in the universities, how do we go about raising productivity and getting better value for the money that is spent? Thank you. And the second question? 
Hello, Peter Wiseman uh, uh, from NAUS Group. Um, I'm curious about the discussion around economic performance. Um, the um, First of all, a, a point about the, the, the extra $3 billion that you've been talking about coming into the system. At the same time, we've had a huge increase in international student numbers, and I would have thought that actually the, uh, the growth in the domestic uh, system has also contributed to that growth in international student numbers, so we should have uh, offset some of those numbers there. But more broadly, the, the discussion around academic performance um, we haven't actually touched on the performance of the school system preparing people for university. And I wonder if the, the panel would like to actually comment on, is there an opportunity here to think about the school system, how we can prepare people better for university and then actually enable that uh, larger cohort to go through? Um, and also um, a, a further point, if I may, um, is there an opportunity here to actually move some of the risk from government or students onto the universities themselves about employment outcomes? Thank you. Excellent questions. Oh, Craig, would you like to start? Um, it, it is a kind of a quandary, isn't it? Because it, I used to be the Minister for Competition Policy, and so I, my argument is competition is good and more competition is better. But um, I, I, I have noticed that there's, you know, when a lot of money comes in, it gets spent in different ways, and there's a You'll find there's a lot more in administration and buildings and so on. I, I wouldn't argue that buildings are a waste of space or a waste of time, but it, I, I, I don't really know how um, to make them more efficient with the money. I, again, I, I suspect, and Andrew may have a sense of this, I suspect a lot of the extra money is actually overseas students, you know, and... Um, but I'd love to be able to say, look, this is what needs to happen. The instinct of policymakers would be to say, we'll draw up all these accountabilities and KPIs and all that sort of stuff, and then some more staff will be engaged to um, work on the KPIs. And okay. I used to work at the UN a little bit later. I'll tell you about the Program Coordination and Monitoring Office, which was supposed to make the UN delivery system more efficient. And all it did is we spent all our time talking to the PCMO as to how we could make ourselves look more efficient. So, you know, I, I'm just saying I don't think that's the solution. So I'd be trying to think in terms of competition policy, but I can't, I'm honestly, I can't immediately think of... Um, away. So these efficiency dividends can actually help there, I think, because, um, you know, these things are a little bit more... Um, you, you've got to do the basic stuff, and then if you get some more money, you do slightly less basic stuff and so on. So I'm not... Don't get me wrong and don't say former tertiary education minister argues for a new round of efficiency dividends, but it's, I just don't like overly prescriptive stuff coming out of Canberra because they'll, you know, they'll just create an army of people to you know, meet those requirements. Um, that really, of course, is the model going forward, which I don't like. So I think uh, 2020, there are all these silly accountability measures and I don't like that at all. I mean, it's a really interesting conundrum and, I mean, I think there is some element of competition, but, you know, it's a very lazy use of capital at universities. I mean, so I think Bond University, I think they run through the year, don't they? Um, you know, so they uh, they have uh, three semesters. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that 
hasn't uh, come about more. Um, uh, I'm, I was reading an article, you probably read it too, uh, by an American academic, like take first year economics. Um, you know, basically first year economics is a standard course and what they're suggesting that you could kind of develop a, a, a series, probably, you know, in, in the competitive element, you know, five or six of the top economists, you know, um, you know, really, you know, uh, classly videoed, and that would form the basis of the first year economics course right through the country. And then you'd spend your resources on small class stuff and, and seminars and tutorials, which is sort of, I think, you know, picking up your point. Because um, we also have to remember that the student experience these days is like very different from when I went to university. Pretty much everyone has a part time job. So it's a sort of combined activity these days. So it's both education and employment. Um, and, and that might be also partly the solution to, to your issue that um, get away from the big classes and have that. I mean, the other thing is that we shouldn't, and I mean, I'd, I'd be interested whether there's some regional experience of this. When I was at Flinders University, we had what you'd call kind of outreach programs. Um, I never was very good at it because often there were a whole lot of high schools that were quite closely located and often go to the wrong one. But, um, you know, we as academics would actually participate in year 11 and year 12 economics and try and kind of be part of the, the bridging program almost at that point. We were trying to encourage them to come to our university, um, which was possibly fairly obvious. But, you know, I'm kind of really interested in those perhaps more decentralised experiences experiments as a way of dealing with some of the, 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 the problems. And my wonder is whether the probably the regional universities may well uh, participate in that sort of thing too. But I really think it is an issue about how we can improve the productivity. Uh, indeed, it's not just uh, higher education, it's schools and hospitals and everything. It's, it's a really huge chunk of the economy. And uh, that, I think, is where a lot of the discussion will go. A uh, bit of an old-fashioned view on uh, preparing kids for university. Two thoughts. One, what's wrong with grammar and spelling and so on? Like, you know, I think if you're, say, in our profession, you're an economist and you say, I'm putting forward this policy prescription and it's full of spelling errors, you know what people are going to do? They're going to say, well, if they can't spell, I'm not very confident about and grammar, you know, the sort of um, dropping of apostrophes like uh, confetti onto a, a page. I, I just find that astonishing, and the deterioration there is just amazing. And you're talking about signalling. That sends really bad signals as far as I'm concerned. Um, beyond that, though, I, you know, I don't think it's the role of schools necessarily, you know, to prepare kids for university. It's to give them the best education that they can and um, um, my uh, the economics lecturer at, at ANU when I was doing my PhD and I was tutoring him, his name was Ted Seeper and they used to ask Ted you know what are the prerequisites for economics one what are the you know school prerequisites for economics one and he said economics one come along do economics one fail and the pass rate amongst those who repeated economics one was about 90%. The pass rate in first year was one third. So he just said, well, come and learn economics, and that's the best prerequisite for economics. 
Thank you, Craig. I'm conscious we're out of time. So um, if I could ask Andrew, is Andrew available? Yes. Yep, great. Um, to make his closing remarks on these questions and particularly whether, Andrew, you could address the question about moving the risk um, of the employment outcomes. Is there a way to move that risk back to the universities at all? I think the way that a microgrant system should work is to reward the unis who are actually delivering good employment outcomes. And we're already seeing that in university advertising, the unis that are doing well are telling students about that. And so they should be rewarded with more students uh, rather than bureaucrats in Canberra trying to decide what outcomes students should have. This is again, I think, the central planning mentality that a demand-driven system was supposed to take us away from. Um, and also my universities are aware of this. They're doing a whole lot of work around employability, not just having the right skills, but the other sort of interpersonal skills. I think this is a sign that a demand-driven system is working and responding to the negative outcomes we had a few years ago. Thank you so much. And it comes to me to close um, this evening's discussion. And thank you to each of our speakers, to Judith, to Craig, to Andrew, um, to each of you for thank your you. participation yeah, you and your patience with our technical um, faults. And thank you particularly to the Grattan Institute for hosting and um, inspiring this evening. Um, and of course, to the New South Wales State Library for this wonderful environment as well. So thank you so much for attending. Um, and please do look for the podcast um, and further material that will be available on the Grattan Institute website. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. Grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.